Welcome to Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. On this podcast, we journey through the devastating experience of the death of a child. Grief is seldom discussed openly in our culture, and the death of a child makes people feel even more uncomfortable. We approach the topic openly and honestly, speaking to people who have lost loved ones and experts who help care for them. Whether you are a parent experiencing loss or someone who wants to support another going through this tragedy, this podcast strives to offer hope and help. Welcome to episode 128 of Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. I'm Marcy Larson, Andy's Mom. Today, I am delighted to speak with Shirlene, Chrissy's mom. Now, Chrissy has a very complicated medical story, so we tried to cover things as best as we could, but an hour simply isn't enough time to talk about Chrissy. I do want to take a quick minute to talk about something new here we have with Always Andy's Mom podcast. I am often asked by listeners, what can I do to help support you and to help expand and grow your mission? The first thing, of course, is to leave a comment or rating on iTunes or your favorite podcast player that helps other people be able to find us more quickly. The second way you can help is to do so financially. Now, I admit I am not very good about asking people for financial contributions. We are a 501c3 charitable organization, so all of your donations are tax deductible. But we recently just made it a little bit easier to be able to donate. We have signed up with GiveButter, which allows us to be able to get donations electronically via a text link using Venmo or Apple Pay. So all you have to do is simply text the word Andy's mom to 53555. This will get you directly to our personal link. You will see that I have a goal of $5,000 for donations, and that number was picked because that is about what it costs to do one year of podcast production for the Always Andy's Mom podcast. So I do appreciate any donation that you can give. If you listen all the way to the end of the podcast, you will hear of additional ways to donate as well. But for now, I just want you to sit back and enjoy listening to Shirlene, Chrissy's mom. Welcome, Shirlene, to the Always Andy's Mom podcast. I'm so excited to have you on. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here and tell Kristen's story because she deserves to have her story told. Oh, absolutely. So you reached out a few months ago and started just telling me about Chrissy and there's a lot to tell. And I just loved reading everything. And we will not be able to go into as much detail here today as I would love to be able to do. But I am excited to let the audience just learn about Chrissy. So why don't we start out by just talking about her birth and some of those complications that happened just shortly after birth? Because she certainly had a lot of complications in her life. Yes, she did. I just said recently she came into the world as fast and furious and traumatic as she left the world. Yeah. And um, so I guess just to start, we had struggled with infertility and we weren't supposed to be have any biological children and we were fine with that it really wasn't one of those big struggles that a lot of people have Mm -hmm. we were just like okay we're gonna adopt kids and that's good there's a lot of kids that need home and then after our second daughter I had one miscarriage at 16 weeks and the doctors were all baffled and they said well I don't know why it happened it won't happen again but six why the pregnancy happened you mean yeah they were like well it's shown up and so don't worry about (laughs) it it shouldn't happen again Six months later, I was pregnant with Kristen and um, everything was going well. Um, We were planning a trip to Florida. When we found out we were pregnant, we asked the doctor and he said, just move it up. Make sure you're back by the time you're at 30 weeks. Right. I mean, that should be plenty of time. Yeah. Because right. pregnancy was going much better than you certainly expected. They expected there right. to be no pregnancy at all. Right. Everything and we were driving beautifully. We, right. We were so you're not fly. flying. Yeah. Yeah. So we went down there with our older children. They were four and two, well, one and a half. And we got down there. We had one day and in the middle of the night, Saturday night, we got there on a Friday, Saturday night after a day of 
swimming and being at the beach, we just, in the middle of the night, I woke up early and I, I had like back pains and I hadn't been to the Lamaze classes or anything and was my first full pregnancy. And I, I thought, oh, that's odd. Maybe I did something in the pool, you know? Right. Sure. And then, yeah, then I like every five, then I started thinking these are coming like every five minutes, you know, I wonder if this is labor. But how many weeks were you at that point? 30. Well, okay. so I was just under 29, just under, like 29 we, weeks. We were, yeah. yeah. So then I, I got up to go to the bathroom and then I was bleeding. So then I knew something was wrong. So we, uh, long story short, we were down in Florida and Captiva Island, which is off of Fort Myers, two islands off. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and my husband's aunt lived in Sanibel and my mother-in-law was there too visiting and we called and my husband's aunt Ruth came out and rushed us, which a rush was like a 45 minute drive into Fort Myer to, mm -hmm. um, you know, going on the islands at 35 miles an hour, which all year allowed, we were breaking the rules. And she, my mother-in-law came and stayed with the other kids and she got us to Fort Myers hospital and we came in and it was probably like five in the morning. And the midwife said, this baby's going to be born now. You know, all the way there, I was thinking I'm going to be on bed rest down in Florida, you know. It's yeah, gonna, right, right, right. How am I going like, to get home? This is going to be hard to get home when I'm yeah. pregnant. And and she yeah. was born like 45 minutes later. Wow. And they kept saying, just wait, the doctor's not here yet. Like, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> so you tell that to my baby. Yes, my baby is not waiting. <laughs> and she came full force. And of course, when you're going through this, there's not your regular doctor. There's nobody around. They're all strangers. And, you know, long story short, we were there at the beginning or after scores and everything. That's what they're called, right? They Apgar were good. Scores. I mean, she was 30. She was 11 weeks early and, mm -hmm. but she still weighed three pounds, six ounces. And oh, that's she, bad, actually. yeah. And 15 inches long. And, you know, initially everything looked good. Of course they whisk her away. She didn't turn blue or anything. And then we got to meet her and it was just all normal, like preemie stuff. If that can be normal. Right. You know, to first she's a preemie. I mean, for me, it can be pretty normal. I've taken yeah, a lot of preemies. You know, and really for the first even one or two years of her life, they kept saying, well, she was a preemie. But so then they kind of, over the next couple of days, there were some odd things. She had a club foot, but we kept, well, her cousin had a club foot. You know, there were things like that. Yeah. Yeah. She had some weird markings on her hands that sometimes kids with chromosomes with Down syndrome have, mm -hmm. and which is odd because I have them too. So then the doctor put that, well, no, you're fine. And there was just some different little things. She had some pulmonary stenosis that they noticed. And so they were doing chromosome tests and everything always came back. Okay. So yeah. they kept saying, you know, it just must be that she's preemie. So after my husband, after two weeks had to go home and work, someone had to work and I stayed with the other two kids. Fortunately, Dave's aunt was able to allow us to stay in her place. They allowed for me and my other two kids. After about four weeks, the big thing came, how are we going to get home? Right, <laughs> you know? right, right. And um, when will she be good? So finally, Dave went home after two weeks. After six weeks, Dave was going to come down and pick up my two-year-old daughter at the time, Casey, and take her back just to get some of the family home. And that very day before he came, we got a message from my doctor back here in Michigan that they were going to send them send the med jet down to Florida to pick us up. So we got permission for my son and myself and Chrissy to go back on this med jet. They drove, wow. came from Michigan in the morning, picked us up at the hospital at 11. We flew into Gerald Ford airport. The ambulance took and, us yep, to Butterworth at the time. And then we were two weeks in, you know, the ICU baby unit there. And so by that time she was weaned off the ventilator already. Right. Pretty much. They wouldn't have wanted to transport her. Right. Wasn't, no, so. she was weaned mm -hmm. off that and she got weaned off that for a normal, you know, and she had a small brain bleed, but they said it was nothing, you know, traumatic, whatever. But anyway, so we got back to, and so when she was able to feed enough with a bottle, I was breast pumping the whole time. Um, then they let her come home and she <laughs> came home on a heart monitor, but she had to be fed every three hours around the clock. And 
So we just kind of lived in that preemie world for a while. And she had her club foot. They had to cast that and recast it. I was really good friends with the orthopedic cast. But then just little things. She didn't grow good. I kept saying it was because she was a preemie. But as a mother, you start to know, you know, yeah. she's not not sitting up. And she rolled over really early. And that was really weird. But then later she stopped rolling over. Okay. So then you're going through all yeah. these things. Was it a immunizations? Who knows? I, you know, we don't know, but she was eventually labeled with um, cerebral palsy. I don't know. As time went on, we saw endocrinologists, cardiologists, geneticists, orthotics people, ears, nose, and throat, you know, yeah, just everything, everything um, and anything. They could never find a chromosome. They were all fine. They even did like a deep skin chromosome. Have you ever heard of that? Where they, it's more than a blood test. They take, she had a little scar on her leg for her whole life where they took tissue. Yeah. We, no, we do and, all um, sorts of different stuff. Now we do some microwave array stuff. It's so yeah. much different. The genetics are so much more Oh yeah, advanced. And, it's just one of those things that now you do start to know. Sometimes it doesn't matter, right? It doesn't right. change anything. But that's kind of where we got. It's like, yeah, she is what she is. Right. And we you know, I'm not saying that we accepted that with a smile on her face or anything. Yeah. I mean, it would be dishonest of me to say that it wasn't hard, you know. Oh, for um, sure. I mean, you know so what I want to talk about now, though, is yeah, about just Chrissy and her specialness and her personality yeah. and how that kind of grew and just to get people to kind of learn about her and love her a little bit because I loved hearing some of these things that made her laugh and just the personality parts, because it's harder when you have a nonverbal child in some ways, especially for other people to see their personalities. And I just want you to share that with us. Okay. Well, she was, I want to say because of her things and I just briefly say like she had two surgeries where she had a halo on her head for six months each. And she was a fighter, but that was part of her personality. She was so feisty and she knew exactly what she wanted. And I'll tell you, it could drive you crazy sometime. And I recently said to somebody, the things that drove me the most crazy are what I missed the most, yeah. like her little feisty attitude and her stubbornness. She taught us a lot of things, but one thing that I'll always remember, she had the bluest eyes ever. They uh-huh. were so blue. And to this day, if I see a blue sky or a blue, I'll say it's Chrissy eye blue. Yeah. They were just so blue. So I wrote a whole list of the things she loved to do. She did learn to walk. Uh, later on in life, she learned to ride her little bicycle, her three wheel bicycle. And she loved that. She always would laugh when people would sneeze or cough or blow their nose. And, you know, <laughs> We thought it was funny, but you go to a church service in the middle of the winter and somebody sneezes and she's, or they're having a coughing attack and she's cracking up in the back seat. You know, I just you love were, that. I think that's hilarious yeah. though. Or she would burp and laugh or someone else would, but you can get away with that kind of stuff because she would <laughs> laugh at you and, and know all that. Um, the other things um, that are unusual about her, she loved thunderstorms, whereas most kids are afraid. And I think part yeah. of that is due to my husband. He always taught our kids to love thunderstorms. Like, oh, isn't that neat? Listen to the thunder and the rain. And he would take them out in the garage to watch it. And so it got to the point where if it was thundering or lightning, Kristen loved to go out in the garage if it was summer and watch it. And she loved to swing and she loved to swing in a warm rain. She would, if it was mm-hmm. raining, just like. She would just love to go swing in the rain, but the thunderstorms was interesting. She loved the lightning part of it. Mm-hmm. And if it was lightning, she would blink her eyes like that. And if it would, if she would wake up in the middle of the night and see a lightning storm, she would wake me up. She would make a noise and I'd go in there and she'd blink her eyes just to tell me it was lightning. And that was okay. Then we said, yeah, it's lightning out. And then I'd go back to bed. We both go to sleep. She's just like, mom, you don't want to miss this. It's yeah. lightning. And if, lightning school. And when it would thunder, if she was awake, I would always say, oh, that's God clearing his throat. <clears> throat> and she thought that was funny. She would like to talk about the thunder lightning. So that was neat. Um, 
And she always loved things that were above her, like uh-huh. helicopters, airplanes, geese flying over, hot air balloons. We used to go to the hot air balloon festival in Hudsonville until it got canceled. And she would just love that. You know, she would sit on her swing in the back and hope for an airplane to fly over, which were kind of in the path to the airport. So she would see them quite often. And we're in the path to the the beach too. So we would see private helicopters flying that way and stuff. But she loved things that were up and rainbows. She had what I don't know what you want to say, an ability to see a rainbow before anybody else would. And that was something that our pastor talked about at her funeral, because sometimes she'd be pointing at the window and I go, what, what? And I'd go out there and there would be a rainbow. Like you wouldn't even be looking for a rainbow. You wouldn't even know that it was rainbow conditions, but she always saw them and she was excited about rainbows. She loved to take walks. I mean, she kept me in shape, especially with COVID when all our programs were shut down. We would walk like four miles a day, six days a week down the path and back. And she loved walks. And in the winter, we would go to the mall, which wasn't my favorite, but that was a place to walk. And then when she got older, the last year of school, when she was 26, she won a bike at school. She had a bicycle that she biked at the Ottawa Area Center that was kind of hers. And I have someone to thank there for helping her to win it. I don't think it was. He just said, oh, she won a bike. And so when she graduated from school, we were able to take that bike home. And she would bike around our driveway, or I would take her to the church parking lot down the road to bike. And then when COVID hit, the schools were closed down. I found this path behind our local school that she biked and she had a trail. And I have a a thing on my phone that she did two miles exactly every time. And it was always the same way. She'd go around one track, turn around, go around this door and around, around. It was always two miles. I would say, let's take this way. No, it had to be the same way. That was same way. part of her OCDC, autism, whatever. And she loved that bike too. A lot. I was very thankful for that bike when COVID hit because it was one more activity we could go do. Sure. We have a cottage up at Silver Lake by Pentwater a family Mm -hmm. cottage Mm -hmm. by the sand dunes. And she loved to go there. She loved boat rides, the splashier and wetter, the better. She loved (laughs) to. And recently we got a a pontoon boat because we used, my husband and I used to like lift her in and out of this little rowboat. All three of us were going to go in one day. So we decided Mm -hmm. we could get a pontoon boat that we could just walk her into and she loved that thing. I, we could be on that all day. She loved to sit at the dunes. She loved the beach. We would take rides to the beach on her days off. She would love to watch the water by the channel in Holland, Michigan. There's a channel you can sit at. And she would love to take walks there and watch the traffic. She also loved to watch traffic, different cars and trucks going by. The bigger the truck, the better. But the beach was a favorite place for her. For us too, probably that was our family because we liked the beach. She loved buses. She would have her class come over for a picnic every year and the bus would park in our field. There was a place where the bus could park and she would go over it and she would always kiss it. She <laughs> loved, she would kiss the bus if we would let her. You know, I else. love hearing little bits about her. I mean, it's just yeah. so nice to be able to kind of learn about her personality. A little yeah, bit. I mean, and. I would be wrong if I didn't say that she had a very hard, you know, I got dents in my wall where she got angry and threw Mm -hmm. her movie tape at it. She had her issues, but she had, why don't you talk about that a little bit now about some of her challenges that, that you felt like, you know, just challenges of parenting a special needs child. And so she had this club foot. So she had problems. She walked. And at one point they had told me, after one of her halo operations on her um, spine that she probably wouldn't be walking when she got into her twenties, but she walked till the end towards the end when all her programs shut down, she wasn't walking as much and she needed to stay active. Otherwise, like she had arthritis bad in her knees and stuff. And that would get like, she walked around on her yard by like, I didn't have to be outside with her when she was in our yard. She was comfortable in our yard. She would walk out to her swing by herself. 
But when we went on long walks, we had a pusher and at school towards the end, if they went on walks, she kind of used her walker quite a bit, Mm -hmm. but I never used the walker at home. She walked around the house and up and down the stairs. Her legs were starting to give her problems at the end though. She wasn't going downstairs as much. I think of that was because of COVID. She wasn't getting enough exercise at her day program. She got enough exercise. And then when you're stuck here, you know, I had her bike, but it just wasn't as much. So that, so her walking and her nonverbal, she understood everything. Her cognitive understanding was so high. You say we were going to grandma's. She knew exactly what we were doing. She knew it was Friday. She knew it was Sunday. She knew, you know, she knew all that and it was Mm -hmm. trapped inside. She had a word board that she could communicate with that. We tried different things, different voice boxes, different things. They're not as nice as they are now on the iPad, but it was always a thing like, because she had a hard time holding things and grasping things. Sometimes it's like, can she carry it with her all the time? You know, so she had this plastic word board that my husband actually, being the engineer that he is, got the plastic material and we had all pictures on it. And she Uh could flip through that and find what she wanted. And she communicated quite well, at least to us, our family, we all knew how to communicate with her. I would often say to people, yeah, Kristen was asking about that. And they would look at me like, right. I was going to say like other people just didn't under, didn't understand kind of how much was there. Yeah. Like to say, you know, go to grandma's tomorrow or, you know, or we drive by someplace and she'd, you know, she'd point to it. Oh, you want to go to Myers or. You know, you want to do that. She was just could communicate very well to us, but other Mm -hmm. people, you know, they don't understand. And I think so she had those difficulties, trouble walking, trouble communicating. She was incontinent, you know, so she was in diapers. She had a weird thing. They thought that finally her incontinency, because it was just in her bladder, was due to all her spinal, because she had two spinal surgeries and a tethered spine. She knew, but she could do her bowel movements on the toilet, which was a blessing for a lot of care, people who cared for her. And as she got older, I don't think people realize this. Your disabilities seem to get more pronounced because when they're little and they're, they can't speak, that's acceptable. And then when you get older, it's harder because they're still acting like a three to five-year-old. Yeah. And you've got this grown child and they're having fits and you can't just like pick them up and walk out of the room. It's like you're yeah, coercing them it's out. It's hard when they get to an adult body. Yeah. And I was always thankful that there was a point when I was glad she stopped growing, that she was only 4'10 and weighed 100 pounds because I could still pick her up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she got very anxious towards mm-hmm. the last maybe five or six years of her life. And I was one who always fought the meds. And finally, my doctor said, why don't you just try an anti-anxiety med? And I kind of did. And we were like, why didn't we try this before? It was a difference of night and day. Uh I mean, I'm not saying that after that, she was like totally healed or anything. She still had her fits. But yeah, so the challenges of having a special needs child in the home is you learn to adjust. You don't do anything without thinking about her. Like whatever people would say, I'm just going to go fill the car up with gas. Well, okay. Am I taking Kristen with, if I leave her here, who's going to watch her? Who's going to make sure she doesn't fall down the steps? Doesn't, you know, not that she ever did. Who's going to be here if something happens, you know, your marriage is affected your life with your other kids. Those were the struggles. I feel like after 27 years, Dave and I learned to adapt. We started having Friday night dinners that we just did at home. And that way she would go to bed and we would have a late dinner and mm-hmm. we grew to love that. And we still do it now. And there oh, were so many yeah. things that we just adjusted our life to. I don't want anybody to think that I figured it all out because I didn't. And I don't want them to think that I didn't struggle because we did. Right. Our friends were being empty nesters and we still had a child at home that needed constant care. You know, we mm-hmm. couldn't just say, you know, we would have friends call and say, oh, we want to go boating this afternoon. Well, <laughs> maybe if we had two weeks notice, <laughs> we could have done that and found yeah. someone to care for her. And it got more difficult because 
there was a time when my older kids were there that they could watch her. Oh, and sure. My parents could help, but then they got out of the house and they had their own lives. And my parents got too old to care for. Mm-hmm. My mom is 91 and my dad passed away at 94. So then you just learn to adjust. We made our home a nice place to be. We could have bonfires. We can slide. We can skate. We have a hot tub. We just learned to adjust, but don't take me wrong. It wasn't that I wasn't sometimes kicking and screaming and asking God, why, why does it have to be like this? This is hard. COVID put on a really hard part of it. Well, first of all, when she, I should say, when she graduated out of the school system at 26, that's a really hard time for parents who have special needs because there aren't programs open to them. Especially there are, if you have a quite high functioning disabled person, but if you have Mm -hmm. someone like Kristen who needs diapers changed and a little bit extra, and there's people, there are disabled children who have so many more needs than Kristen who are tube fed, who are in wheelchairs, who Mm -hmm. can't do anything. There just isn't a lot for them. And with COVID, so many programs got shut down. And that was hard on her when school quit because that was her lifetime. Her friends were there that she made. And she just had a hard time readjusting to that. And we were fortunate. We got a really good day program at a place called Benjamin's Hope. But then when COVID came, it was shut down. And it was just her and I 24-7 at home. It got hard. Now I'm thankful for it. Because sure. we, be- we had a beautiful summer together. We got to spend a whole month at our cottage that she just loved. And I just stayed there because there was nothing to come home for. There were no, yeah. everything was shut down. And at the lake, yeah. we could just kind of do what we wanted. There are resources out there. There's mm-hmm. one really, if you're in West Michigan, it's called the Lucas Project. Mm-hmm. And you can look it up. And it's just plus the mess also. And she is an advocate for caregivers. It's yeah, good to have and, those kind of resources. Yeah, she offers different respite ideas and that kind of thing. But there's still a lot to be learned. Um, she's actually doing a documentary on April 24 at Aquinas College. It's called Unseen, about caregivers and their struggles mm-hmm. and how they're unseen. So, I mean, I guess if anybody's out there feeling desperate, yeah. you know, yeah. connect. Yep. You feel lonely. You feel lonely when you've lost a child. You feel lonely when you have a special needs child too, because yeah. there's not a whole lot of other people out there. But so Kristen in 2016, she had a surgery, which is called a lab procedure for like four or five years. She had been having a strange thing where she would throw up like bile every couple of months. She would get this where she would just throw up and I depleted everything. I'd go to my regular doctor. I'd go to a cardiologist. I'd go to, nobody had an answer for it. Why is she doing this? They would say it's a virus. And I said, this is not a virus. You know, we are not getting sick. She's throwing up large amounts. And finally, after one particular episode, I said to my doctor, I have to be connected to a, to say that they did a lot of scans, a lot of, Mm -hmm ultrasounds and found nothing. They said, no, everything looks good. You know, I thought maybe it was related to her menstrual period or something, but it was just, so finally I said, I have to have a gastroenterologist. By the time I got connected to her, Kristen had no symptoms and they said, next time she has it. So the next time she had it, yeah, I called and they said, well, let's see how it goes. And I, I was pretty adamant by after four or five years of this, I said, no, you promised me a sedated (laughs) MRI or CAT scan. And so finally she said, okay. And we got there and they did a CAT scan. They said she has to have an emergency surgery. Her bowels are male rotated and she's has what they call, it was called a LAD procedure where she has some kind of bindings that close and get worse as you get older. I looked at the doctor and I said, I want a second opinion. And he said, well, you got like an hour and a half because she's going to go septus. And then he said to me, how long has this been going on? And I said, well, like four or five years. And he said, I can't believe a doctor never. He goes, it's a birth defect. Yeah, I I know. That's what's so shocking about it. Because I can't believe believe she's 23 and and she had all these things. And then 
And all it, these it's extras, weird because because I'm sure she would have had an upper GI at some point. Oh yeah, think. we went. And if you would have done a small bowel follow through, which usually you do, and now I'm yeah. I know I'm talking medical, but I just don't understand how that wouldn't have somehow been picked up in all of that stuff. <laughs> I think because so much was always focused on her cerebral palsy and everything else. Yeah, yeah, they just didn't. I I, I mean did. I understand that stuff falls through. It just seems crazy to me that they, somebody yeah. wouldn't have happened upon it accidentally right. yeah right and so after that surgery she really did well she was out of the hospital i said to the doctor what is it anything i have to look no she should be good to go you know anything i have to think about and he said no she should be good to go you know do i have to watch for anything no you know so after that surgery she had no constipation nothing it was wonderful the summer that was after 23 years of fighting constipation, Miralax and the whole yeah. everything, you know, all of a sudden it's like, Oh, this is wonderful. <laughs> so 2020 your program shut down. We're home all the time. I go on a sister's weekend every year with my sisters. And I know that you've had other podcasts where the parent gone. It's and crazy. It's like you could break yourself over the coals a hundred times for doing I that. But I I've had two like, that they went to for girls yeah. weekends in Las Vegas yeah. too. Actually, we just went down the road to my sister. Her husband had recently passed away. So we thought we'll stay at her house. Well, there's a lot to do in West Michigan. Oh, know? yeah, yeah. Especially yeah, in the so summertime. We yeah. I mean, there's no no reason to go anywhere else. People come right. here in the summertime, right? Right. Well, and my other sister, one's from North Carolina, one's from Chicago. So we were just going to be in her house and go out on day trips. And everybody knew that I needed a break. I had been with Kristen 24-7 for since March 14, <laughs> you know, yeah. because, and so I was looking forward to this COVID and I went and she was good. I, and I have to say, I didn't need a total break. She had been at respite the week before I had a wonderful respite person that came into our lives five years before she died. She would take her for various things, but anyway, sisters weekend, I went sometimes when I left, Kristen would give Dave a little bit of problem because that problem that he could handle, but you know, he didn't do it exactly like mom did it. Right, right, right. And so right. And she, she definitely little, was particular. Yeah, she would get a little ornery. And, but anyway, she was fine. Friday, I was gone Thursday night, Friday. Um, him and my husband and Kristen went to the land together. That was something they did. That was a fun thing they did all through COVID. Their company was shut down on Friday. So he would take her on Friday to give me a break. They would go up to the our land up by Howard City and she would sit in the truck. That was something she loved to do. She'd turn up the music really loud and switch the stations. <laughs> he would mm -hmm. chop wood. Saturday, she went on an outing with my daughter, Casey. They went to Burger King was finally open and they went for a caramel Sunday. That was her favorite thing. And after that, Casey gave her a bath and she had a full bowel movement. Uh -huh. So you wouldn't think that was Saturday. Then Sunday, she got a little off, but not like she just didn't want to eat. Not like my husband felt like he had to call me or, you know, he didn't know if she was just, you know, sometimes she did that. She just didn't want to eat. She just didn't want to have the sandwich. I mean, it wasn't unusual. Right. And then by Monday, I forget what it was. He was working from home. He was going to leave when my other daughter got home from work. And he called me at like one and he said, you know, Kristen's just not right. And I said, well, do I need to come home? Because Sister's Weekend was going to be done Monday night at supper. And he goes, I don't think so. She doesn't feel hot. You know, she just, she didn't sleep last night. She kept wanting me to get up. That was unusual because usually if she got up, she'd go back to sleep. So I said, well, do you think I can stay for supper? And he said, I think so. So I came home Monday night after supper and she was laying on the bed, my bed. She liked to lay on my bed sometime because we have our bed is right by the window. I said, what's up? And I took her in her bed and she just was really uncomfortable. Like I ended up laying in bed with her that whole night and she just was restless. And I didn't, with Kristen, you didn't know, was it her back? She didn't have a fever. She threw up a little bit. You know, she kept drinking her juice. I kept giving her juice. She kind of had made sweats Tuesday. I called the doctor and he said, he said, yeah. see how she does through the night because she didn't have a fever. Wednesday morning, I called. I said, she's got to come in. I said, she's yeah. breaking up. Well, of course, by that time, her regular doctor wasn't there. 
they were local doctors from the doctor's office I've always gone through, but they didn't know her. And they're just looking at her. Her vitals were good. Her blood pressure was good. She didn't have a fever. I kept saying she's breaking out in these cold sweats. She can't walk. She doesn't want to walk. I thought maybe she had a UTI urinary tract infection because it kind of smelled. And she's had those before. And she was kind of acting like that, like a backache. Mm-hmm. And she never cried out when she was in pain and she never cried. And now looking back, I know that she was in terrible pain because she had a twisted colon, you know? So Wednesday I, they set her up on antibiotics. I got the urine test for the, but in the middle of the night, Wednesday night, I said to my husband, we got to bring her in. She's not, she's, in, she's miserable. And we went to Zealand hospital because they have a really good emergency room and it's closer. You get right in. We got right in. They did a, you know, I don't know. Do you think it was a CAT scan? <laughs> yeah. Or an MRI. CAT scan. Um, yeah. CAT scan. And they came out and they said, they wouldn't let Dave in, just me. They said, she has a twisted colon and it's exploded. Oh. And they said, we got to check into this more. They didn't even make it sound that serious. But oh then they gosh, came back and really said, yeah. yeah, it's really serious. Yeah. And, and they came back and said, a little while later after an hour, we can't take care of it here. We're going to take her by ambulance to Blodgett to the colorectal unit down there so they can see her. So 11 o'clock, the ambulance came. She went right to ICU. So we got there at about 11, at 12 probably. And while we were driving there, the guy in the ambulance in the back, they weren't going to let me in. And I said, I'm riding with her. Well, because of COVID rules, I said, I'm going to ride with her, you know? So I did. I rode in the front. They let me ride. And they kept saying her blood pressure was fluctuating badly. I always felt that she would pull through because she always did. She she always did. I mean, she had one surgery where we thought she was going to die when she had her her heart went berserk and the chaplain came in, you know, that was in 2000 and she always pulled through. They did the surgery at four. And even when she, I went, before she went in, I said to the doctor, she said, she'll come out with a colostomy bag. And I said, just make it reversible. And she said, I don't know if I can do that. And I said, well, just try. Cause I'm thinking here's this child with all these special needs. Now she's going to have a colostomy bag. Right. Cause that was the one thing she could do fine. Right. It's that balance. Right. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So she came out and, you know, even then they said, you know, they say the surgery went well. I feel like everything was candy coated. Maybe it was my ears. Maybe I was trying to candy coat it. Mm-hmm. I mean, but the, she just kept saying, we cleaned out so much stuff. There was so much in there. I didn't realize that that means it was seriously bad. You know, I knew it was bad, but not like we're not going to recover from this bad, you know, and they tried to explain how even when you drop glitter all over, there's little pieces still left. And I got that, but nobody ever said it's going to be really touch and go. Yeah. Someone could have said that to me. It's this whole thing that doctors feel like they want to give you hope. Yeah. And they want to have hope too. I think it's hard for us to even admit to ourselves sometimes that this may not work and that things are going bad, but it's so important. We have to be honest with ourselves and honest with our patients. But I think a lot of it does go back to, I think they're not even honest with themselves as to how bad things are sometimes. Right. So then Mm -hmm. when she came out of surgery, they were getting her kind of settled down. And I'm a monitor watcher. I've been in the hospital enough with that girl. I watch all the numbers and I'm breathing and I want to know every bag going into her. And Mm -hmm. um, I'm watching that monitor and we had an excellent nurse and he was such good care of her, but there was about maybe 45 minutes after the surgery, I'm starting to think. And he was I saw her blood pressure going down and I'm seeing the numbers and I'm seeing him like twisting around with tubes and I'm like getting panicky. Well, maybe it's just a kink. I said once to him, isn't that too low? Well, I think it's just, you know, and all of a sudden I see him texting and it was like, I saw the numbers go down and I saw her heart go flatline and I saw people run in and yeah, I saw the whole unit coming in. 
my husband and I, we just kind of went hysterical because we knew what was happening. I find my husband didn't at first. I said, look at the numbers she's going. Finally, I was kind of just saying, just let her go. Because to see her in that state with all those tubes. But anyway, they took us out of the room and we went in the other room and we thought she was gone. And they came back like 10 minutes later and said, we got her back. You know, we were a mess. I can't even describe how, you know, <laughs> you're yeah, a mess, I know. you're shaking, you're panicking, you're, you're shivering. And at that point I thought she's going to make it. She just yeah. made it through a six minute coding. She coded yeah. for six minutes, but then I had to watch them for like the next hour and a half. And they finally got her and they got her regulated. There was a tube everywhere. After the surgery, they didn't close her up because of the, the severity yeah, of the infection. So infection. They don't do that because they yeah. might have to go back in. And at one yeah. point during the next day, evening, they almost took her back in because yeah. she got a really bad fever. So it was just up and down for that first week. She had a bad fever. She gained 30 pounds of fluid. She was swollen. She couldn't move anything. She would respond if we would say like, pull my hand. Mm -hmm. So she did that sometimes, not all the time. Mm -hmm. She would respond. I'm sure she was medicated. So the first couple of days, they were all about that respiratory machine. And they said, she's doing really good. You know, yeah. we're going to try to get her off. And then it ended to be this endless week of, we're going to get her off the respiratory. We're going to get her off the respiratory. And they couldn't. She just kept needing that. And we would get these different things. The respiratory therapist would say, she's doing really good. Well, really good doesn't mean they're getting off. And I would say to the doctor, we're going to get her off today, right? And they would try and they couldn't. Yeah. So it kept being that. And that was along with, they were trying to flush out the infection too. So she's swollen. It was just everything. Um, it's just so hard. I it mean, was just so hard. hard. And watching she, your child kind of deteriorate yeah. like that. Mm -hmm. And I think when it comes to the end, you think by two weeks of that, you just want them out of their pain. Yeah. You want them out of their pain, but then all of a sudden they're gone and you're like, oops, I didn't really want them gone. But so she, but I should go back. She did pretty good the first week. And then the second week, things just went downhill. At the first week they had put on like a, they call it a vac seal, I think it, sucks uh -huh. out the wound. And when that came off, it came off, they couldn't put a new one on toward at the very end. They couldn't even bandage it. She was just like leaking. Yeah. They just had like diapers on her tummy too. So it's actually good that I go back to this because when you get away from that, you think, Oh, why did I make that decision? But that's right. why. Yeah. And she, it's so hard because you just do one more thing. You just keep right. doing one more right. thing. And you can kind of lose focus on the whole picture exactly. when you just are treating one little thing at a time. Like, oh, the vacuum right. seals off. Oh, I guess we'll do this now. And, right. and not thinking about, okay, the vacuum seals off. So this wound is now open. We already have right. all those bacteria that were in there from the bowel. Now it's just open right. to the air and anything can get right. there. And we can't get her off the ventilator and this, and this, and this. And we're she had coded her. for six minutes and we yeah. don't know what's left right. cognitively. And so I think that's what happens is that you just yeah. keep addressing one little problem at a time right. and no one takes this time to pause it. right and think of everything right and that's right? it and each doctor each one of those things and she like they tried to tube feed her and she started regurgitating so each one of those things you have the respiratory person the yeah. icu doctor the coral rector doctor and they all have their opinion but nobody's but the, this is only they're only having their opinion on their one little thing right and if their that's one little thing was the only thing it would be okay right. I mean, right. I just think back to, I had, I remember when a patient was born in the NICU, it was my very last day of my residency. Actually, it was really bizarre, but right. there was a baby that was born with an emphalocele, which means that all okay. your intestines end up being kind of on the outside. Oh yeah. And it had a single ventricle heart. So instead of having a left ventricle and a right ventricle, it only had one. Okay. So it had hypoplastic left heart. So it had terrible. 
So the heart actually was out of the body too. So it wasn't oh, wow. just the intestine, yeah. it was the heart too. Well, if you have that at the time, if you had a hypoplastic left heart, you had a 50% chance of survival. If you had um, phallocele diaphragmatic hernia, you had a 50% chance of survival. So somebody told this family that there was a 50% chance of survival. There was not. There was There was not. There yeah. was no chance of survival because they had both. You can't do it when they have both. Right. And right. here we are, I'm trying to do chest compressions on basically an open heart when it yes. stops just with my latex yeah. gloves on or yeah. sterile gloves on. Like, right. this is crazy what's yeah. happening. But it's because people didn't think about the fact that a 50% chance of survival plus a 50% chance of survival. Right. You can't even multiply them and say, right. okay, now it's 25. It's like, right. no, together that's zero. Right. Let's be honest with the family and tell them that this is zero. And with you, with thing after thing, after thing, after thing, nobody wanted to step back and look yes. at all of these things together means her chance of survival is actually zero. Not right. 10% from this because her survival odds were low anyway, right? After right, this perforated right. bowel and all of that, she had she low chance of survival. Yeah. But then when all these other things start happening, like it goes from low to nothing. I think it's hard to be the per first one to say yeah. this is zero. And right. so I think what ended up happening to you is you ended up being the first one to realize this I is zero. I did. And that made it so hard. Yeah. And well, my husband being a, team leader, what he does is engineering. He always says, there's nobody to head up the team. You know, yeah. he says, when we have a project, you know, mm-hmm. Chrissy should be a project and there should be a team leader of this whole yeah. thing, which mm-hmm. there isn't. When we started talking to the doctor, the doctor said to me, one the ICU doctor had said, well, I heard you say, just let her go. And he said, do you know that we can't do that? because she's a disabled adult. I guess I had asked a DNR in case this happens again, I had said, yeah. and he yeah. said, well, we can't do that because she's a disabled adult. You have to have a court order. And that we were like, but we're her legal guardians. We went through this whole thing at 18 to be her legal guardians and to make all these decisions. And they're like, well, I don't think so. You know, so this whole thing came up. So I should say the first week she did pretty good. But then that second week when things started going down, they couldn't do the VAC. I said to Dave, we got to get this DNR in place. You know, we have to be able, if something happens again, she codes again, we're ready for this. Right. And then it was at that time, no nurse or doctor ever said anything to us. My daughter who works at Mary Freeman said to me, mom, is there an ethics committee? So I asked and they said, oh yeah, do you want to meet with them? And we're like, yeah. So it was just a woman and she, we met with her and she was very understanding and she was on our side to get this. So I don't know how it all got set up, but we finally on like Monday or Tuesday after Kristen had probably been there 12 days and was just going downhill, we got set up for this court date. And this was after talking to our lawyer who he didn't even know that. And he looked into it for us and he was great. And he was the one who said to us, he said, those doctors are trying to play God. (laughs) He said, you can't let them do that. And I said, you know, I know they're, you know, when they were trying to be like, you don't want to be the doctor that gives no hope, but you're right. Everybody had their little piece on Tuesday night. My husband stayed that night because we, we were there the whole time. He would go, I would come. Kristen had one of us there all the time. And we were the only two allowed because of COVID. On Tuesday night, a doctor came in, the colorectal doctor came in and said, hey, you know, we totally think Kristen's going to recover. It's just going to take a long time. And at six o'clock the next morning, the ICU doctor came in and said, we have to get her on a trach. And we get on a trach. She's got like 10% chance of surviving. So he went to bed thinking, I've got this long road. Long road, but it'll be okay. Because the colorectal surgeon is looking at her abdomen. Right. And and according to that, that will get better. And so it was that next morning, 
I was texting my sister who was a nurse and she said to me, ask that doctor what a total recovery looks like. Yeah. You know, what does it look like? A vent, a feeding tube, a colostomy bag, laying on a bed to live maybe six more months. I don't know. And then the doctor said, and she, she will have to move to a place where you probably won't be able to go where we won't be able to see her because of COVID. I had one nurse who had been with Kristen and she, I wish I could see her again. She knew that we were trying to get the DNR and she said, you are doing the right thing. She said, I have been a nurse for 30 years. She goes, you are doing the right thing. She said, you would be selfish not to. I like to think of that, but still you have all this guilt and all these things going on. I like that so when she said that you would be selfish not to, that is true. Right. You've been her caregiver forever. So for you, it doesn't feel like the right thing sometimes. No, because I always made her better. I mean, not me, of course, by the grace yeah, of yeah, God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. I was always did. able to nurse her back to health and I kind of took pride in that. So it was like a failure <laughs> Yeah, yeah. for me. Yeah. So then we finally had our court date and- it was online in this little room off the hospital. And our lawyer had said, oh, this is a really good judge. I have no problem. But the judge gave us the workout. You know, why are you doing this? You know, you don't want to commit to caring for her. And he even called the doctor back on and the ethics committee person back on to the courtroom. You know, by that time, the doctor was like, this is the best thing. You know, he said that to the judge and the ethics committee said, I have no question that these people love their daughter and that they would do anything to have her with them. But then after that, even then, I wish that some doctor had come to us because then it was like, okay, now now we're going to take her off and this is what's going to happen. And it's like, you know, I need my pastor here. I need something, you know, and he couldn't come because of COVID. And it was just like, okay, the court order's here. You're done. Yeah. I felt like, could I have some people come in and tell me how this is going to feel and what I'm going to think when it's done? And you know, and by four o'clock, they took her off. She's such a fighter. She breathed for six hours on her own. <laughs> you know, we were able to be there. That, that meant a lot. Nothing prepares you for that. So, no. and, and I've talked to other people too, and you think you're ready and you think that you've thought about this and you know what it's going to be like, but right. that, in that moment, when it happens, you're like, oh, wait, 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 wait. what? Yes, what? right. And then I'm no, no, like, no, no, no. Oh, this is not, she's not suffering anymore, but oops, she's not here either. You know? Right, right, that right, right. Time. You have those you thoughts know? at the exact same time. Yeah. You're like, that, I don't want Okay. To she's not suffering. I'm so glad she's not suffering. She's at peace now. Yeah. Oh my word. She's not here. And she's never coming back. <laughs> no. And I'm never having her again. Yeah. Yep. And that's the neverness of it. That's very hard. And I don't know how someone could prepare you for that. Right. But, and I think you can't, I wish you could. But yeah. I think you can't. No, I think you can't. I know. The hard thing I think with Chrissy, and I want to have just a few minutes to say how we honor her. Yes. <laughs> so, yes. We probably but, ought to jump to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I do feel like a lot of people thought, well, she was a lot of work. Phew. Don't you yeah. just feel relieved that she's in heaven now? And it's like. And now you are an empty nester or in whatever, whatever. Oh, but my you, goodness. Yeah. But the, but the deal is, is that was, she was your identity. She was my identity and I'm still groping for, for that. Who am I now? Yeah. And I was always Chrissy's mom. You were Chrissy's mom for 27 and a half years. You were Chrissy's mom. When I say that, when you say always Annie's mom, I would always say I'm Chrissy's mom. (laughs) People go, oh, you're Chrissy's mom. You know, people know you're much more Chrissy's mom than even Shereen. Right. 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 Mm Right. So I don't know if, we went through that, but I just hope that somehow doctors, hospitals can somehow learn to be a little more tender, <laughs> Yeah, a little more preparation. Maybe they could add a class to that in medical. Medical school. I've done school. one. One medical school class has gotten a class, has gotten a lecture from me. So we'll see if we All can right. get more well, to get lectures good. from me. Good. The students thought it was great and they, they learned yeah. a ton. So so we're going to maybe keep going that way. So I'm trying to work on that now. Well, good. So Should tell I, me how you honor Chrissy today. I can make this short because I know our time is running out. 
I always have a candle burning in my house for her when I'm home. I make candles. So I just always have them there. One thing my husband and I started doing after she died, our daughter-in-law got us into going rock finding. So we're like Petoskey stone finders. We go to the beach and spend an afternoon and my husband polishes them and he actually brings some of his favorites to her grave. And there's just one more thing I want to say, you know, what is so hard when you pick out that beautiful name for your child, like Andrew, Kristen, Ruth Eberlein, you never expect to put it on a tombstone. tombstone. That is a Mm -hmm. terrible thing. Yep. But anyway, Another thing I did is I got 88 by 10s of her. Wow. And I put them up where you have on the wall, the picture of your four children. I change hers like every couple of weeks just to keep different memories. Her alive, her on her bike, her in the boat, her up at the land, her on the quad. Well, that's beautiful. I love I that love idea. That. And for a while, she, she has a little Matchbox bus collection. So uh-huh. I just have one. I just have one of those on the counter. At her first birthday, my husband and I, I don't think you can see it. We got a tattoo. Oh, did you? I can't <laughs> see it. That says Chrissy. Can't see it. But anyway, Oh, no, I can see it. I can see it. Um, we each got one that says Chrissy with a heart under it. So we, uh-huh. when we get old and can't remember, that will always be <laughs> on us. Um, and a tree. Our neighbor, we were going to get a tree. I had thought oh, a tree would be good to plant. She always loved the tree out the door. We have a tree. She liked to watch the leaves rustle. There were some at the cottage she liked to watch too. Uh, our neighbors, we have great neighbors who we've had for 37 years. They bought her a tree mm-hmm. and we planted it up at our land actually, because my husband said that will be in our family longer than our home. Yeah. And uh, my daughter-in-law made us a, a stone with her name on it, Kristen in a rainbow and nice. put some of the beach glass in there that Dave and I had collected too on our beach walks. And also made a rainbow. So that's up in our land in her memory. Oh, um, those are beautiful ways yeah. to keep her memory alive. And and I'm I like it. you, I would have been the kind of person who said, what? They haven't cleaned out their room after a year and a half? No, well, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, slowly, once in a while, I go in there and I can get rid of a few things. I just can't do the. There's no timetable. Yeah, there's no timetable. And I figure I just do it a piece at a time. And. So those are some of the ways we honor it. The other day I walked out to the field and there was a lug nut in the uh-huh. field, which I picked it up and I put it on the windowsill. And Dave said to me, why did you keep that? And I said, because you, he always called Kristen his Louie lug nut. Really? And you just found know. a lug nut randomly? And I found a lug nut sitting in the field and I said, so I have to keep that there. We had a lot of names for Chrissy, Louie lug nut. You know, but (laughs) but one hour can't even cover her. But no, no, one hour can't. But I hope we did an okay job today, and letting people kind of know some of those things. I think learning about some of those struggles that you can have end of life. I think that's good for us all to know, actually, right going forward. And then just learning about Chrissy and helping to keep her memory alive. So I just love talking to you today. Thank you so Thank much you. for sharing her Thank with us. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. If you found this helpful and would like to support the podcast, please leave a five-star rating and comment. To help financially, you can text Andy's Mom to the number 53555 or visit the donate page on andysmom.com. Your donations are secure and tax-deductible and we are now able to accept Venmo, PayPal, and Apple Pay. Always Andy's Mom is a registered 501c3 organization and can receive donations through smile.amazon.com, Thrive in Financial, and Benevity, amongst others. Marcy loves hearing from listeners. Please feel free to reach out to her via email at marcy at Also, be sure to sign up for the email list to receive weekly updates as well as pictures of all of Marcy's guests and their children. Together, let's work to inspire hope one day at a time.